This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Interesting meeting of the Planning and Economic Development uh, Committee yesterday at Hamilton City Hall. And uh, paramount among the, meet, uh, the, the, the agenda items on the meeting yesterday uh, had to do with Gore Park. And this has been going on for years now, of course, about what we're going to do with the buildings on uh, the south side of Gore Park. And uh, there was a, a compromise plan that was put forth, uh, but it uh, doesn't please everybody, obviously. Uh, quite a few folks uh, from the public spoke out against this yesterday, but the committee did pass this, a plan to demolish some historic buildings uh, by the Gore. Uh, met with approval from the city's planning committee yesterday, but as I say, not without some uh, uh, long, long debate and discussion about uh, alternative methods that uh, could be done. Jason Farr has been on this file for, well, since the beginning, obviously. He's the counselor for downtown and more, too. Joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on this. Uh, Jay, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, thanks for following this for over five years now. Has it been that long now? Okay. It has, yeah. (laughs) Uh, all right, uh, let's let's maybe let our listeners know exactly what's been going on here right now. Uh, and besides, uh, you knew this was not going to be an easy ride yesterday. There are some people that are just flat out opposed to what's going on here. But let's maybe just a brief history on, on how we got to this point five years in, into this plan now. Well, um, brief history is a challenge, but I'll, I'll try to make, <laughs> make it within 45 seconds for you, Bill, so we can get to the events of yesterday, but yeah. uh, five years ago, um, uh, following all proper procedure and policy, the current owners held demolition permits, as you know, for all five addresses uh, there in the Gore. They uh, then shut off all the utilities as per policy uh, so they could proceed with the demolition. Uh, I stood for uh, uh, a compromise then, as you and I talked about mm-hmm. then. And they agreed, uh, and it was much appreciated and still appreciated, uh, to hold off on the demolition, sit down with the city, talk. And essentially on their side, it was, well, what incentive plans are in place that are going to make the project a first-phase project of a three-phase project that brings lots of commercial, lots of density to the area, particularly with a, a tower in back that we'll talk about in the years to come. But um, we sat down at the table and we provided them all that information. It wasn't enough initially. Council then moved motions to make it more. We increased our incentive programs to the benefit of this project, but all others who would apply. We went from heritage grants from deeds or property ownership to uh, address ownership, and we changed 250 to 1. million as an example for this particular project. Council unanimously accepted that. Things like that along the way to try to sweeten the pot to make a compromise happen. And then, of course, we had what was before us yesterday as a, as a, pu- a well-publicized, though you were the first to hear it on CHML in 2013, a compromise where three of the facades on the west side would be preserved and be uh, designated heritage, and the, and the two on the east side would be redeveloped. So a newer project to the east that is all part of a bigger project uh, as it relates to the five properties. That, of course, went uh, somehow sideways. We had the emergency designation in 2013. Uh, the final uh, meeting of the year, I threw a four-page document on the floor, almost didn't get it on the floor to waive the rules, but ultimately, unanimously, council said, yes, let's move a motion that we intend to designate this to stop again the demolition of all of the buildings. And now, since then, through lots of talks, uh, lots of amicable conversations, lots of considerations and compromise we've come up with, where we were essentially about four years ago, uh, the restoration and the heritage designation of 18, 20, and 22, uh, very significant Thomas Kerr buildings used to be a dry goods when it first opened up over 150 years ago, and the redevelopment of the other two properties. And there's there's a Time sensitivity to this. I mean, this you mentioned this has been dragging on for five years, but but you and I talked about this, I think, just before Christmas, uh, about the need to get this thing going. And I know that some people uh, that addressed the committee, as a matter of fact, some people on the committee, uh, did not support this yesterday and said, look, let's just wait and we'll see. Maybe something will change on this. Uh, you, waiting should not be an option at this stage. There's a lot of great things happening down at Gore. Uh, with the the Gord Park, the the redevelopment plans, some of the other plans about some of the other buildings down there, you you, you got to move on this thing. Which I think that I I think that sense of urgency was 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 felt at that meeting yesterday, don't you? Well, no doubt. I mean, it's it's you know I didn't really emphasize that. Hey, let's get moving here. Let's let we're. I didn't emphasize that we were in a hurry. But what I did uh, tend to speak to was the fact that this is five years in the making. I really appreciate 
And I think every one of us, well, no matter what side, if you were the six in favor or the three opposed, really appreciated this newly established Friends of Gore. Uh, about five weeks ago, before they started their social media campaign, rallied their troops, got the buttons, got the T-shirts, showed up to planning committee. They were gracious enough to sit down with me, share with me their intent. I was uh, uh, very forthcoming, sharing with them the, the, the brief history I just shared with you and told them it's going to be very difficult uh, for me to get on side with, you know, what you're asking for, which is 100% retention, 100% heritage designation, that I've been working on this compromise for five years. And while I appreciate your newly established group and, and what you stand for and the, the knowledge you bring to all things heritage, I, I wasn't going to I, was, I wasn't going to waver. Uh, because it had taken so long. So it wasn't that I was in a big hurry, but I was trying to explain, I think yesterday I articulate that this, this isn't something that we're just kind of rushing onto the floor. This, this is something that has seen several motions through council, unanimous, attached to it one way or the other. And it's been a roller coaster ride. It has, at some time, uh, in, in some occasions in the past five years, Bill, as you know, we saw, we did an interview when they had the, the demolition equipment the one summer mm-hmm. out of nowhere and, and threatened to demolish that we had the emergency uh, designation. But for the most part, it's been very amicable and it's been a, a conversation that's been, you know, half a decade in the making. So, you know, time to get moving. Everybody on both sides that support this project uh, have, a, have a procedure and a path that council asked for in place, a process in place to make this project happen not a demolition where you're going to see nothing but surface asphalt for years to come part of this process is signed off on by both sides that that it's all uh working together and it's all going to uh follow a a timeline but that by 2020 2019 this project is in the books let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what is going to be there um and again, I know that this uh, David Premi, who's the architect working for the owners, because uh, we talked to the owners on numerous occasions over this five-year period uh, on this program, and, and essentially the message they gave us was pretty consistent, is look at nobody wants to rent any space in the building as it is right now. In, in other words, it, it's just in, in the year 2016, as it was back when we had these discussions with the owners, they said this is not a profitable uh, situation. You've got to be able to do something. Uh, which is why this compromise came forward. Is that the message you were getting from them as well? Well, that was the message uh, right from the get-go in absolutely 2016. And in fact, you know, like I said to open the show here today and a reminder to your listeners, when, when you go follow proper legislative policy to get a demolition permit, you shut off services. So for the last five years, there's been no heat, no hydro, no plumbing going into these buildings. And we know that what that can do to your house or to your building uh, over a long period of time. So it would be a, a, a much greater challenge now than it was even five years ago. When they purchased these properties in 2000, which I don't think we talked about yesterday, you know, they did drop uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They fixed the roof. They, they tried uh, to fit it up and, and make it tenant-worthy. They actually did tenant it, but uh, it wasn't at your you know uh, Toronto per square footage rent that you would expect in the heart of a beautiful city like Hamilton, uh, they were they were you know sort of just getting by, and and so they feel, and I, I tend to agree that this particular project, the first of a three-phase larger development, uh, will be something that uh, people will uh, jump at, want to be part of, and it, it does include, and that's the thing we want to emphasize, it does include a heritage designation on three of the five properties. All right. Now, I was excited when I heard about this compromise uh, because I, I've seen this in action. I mean, anybody who's visited Halifax and in some of the, uh, uh, the historical areas of Halifax, they've done exactly this, where they've they've rebuilt, but they've maintained the facade, so the street front and the street uh, the character, I guess, is is really maintained, and that's essentially what what they're shooting for here. Is that right? Oh yeah, we get, we have a great example, and I know you 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 are. Uh applauding the efforts of Sobe and, and uh, both Sobe's and Kiyakowski on King William, the yeah. Temper Plots. That beautiful, I mean, your eye actually, in my view, and I'm no great expert on these things, but what you're looking at when you look at those four or five restored buildings is actually uh, a, a development, a new building in the middle. The gray building in the middle is, is brand new. So there's an example right around the corner of a mix of new and and old, uh, right around the corner, and and it's obviously working. My the the word on the street, Bill, is that they're demanding uh, the highest rents we've seen 
in a long, long time, for, like, you know, uh, on average, uh, for and, and rents. They're not selling condos, but just the residential rent. I, I heard that uh, one uh, monthly rent is well over $2,000 for one of the spaces in the Templar Flats. So it's, it's a definite success story that also speaks to redevelopment slash preservation. And and it has happened, and it, it, right, it's happening it in Hamilton. Happened. It's happening in other cities as well. Uh, it, it may not sit well with with uh, some of the, the the people that want these things maintained just as they are right now. But but as we've talked about with members of the Heritage Committee in in the past, uh, uh, you know, there's no sense in in maintaining a building if just you know if it's going to sit there empty. Uh, you know, it's got to be contributing. And and this seems to be a plan. I guess two questions come to mind now. This pass passed yesterday, six to three, as you mentioned at the planning committee. It's yes. got to be endorsed by council right now. Are we going to get this thing moving, or is there going to be a problem here? Uh, you know, you know, I, I'm always hesitant. I think other councils are to predict the outcome of a ratification vote. So you know, this was a nine-person subcommittee. Six to three is a healthy vote in support. And some of the councillors that don't sit on planning committee, obviously, because this has been at the forefront when it's uh, highlighted on shows like yours, when it's in the spectator, they're asking questions along the way. And over the last five years, the sense I get from the councillors that aren't on a committee and in short bill and an answer to your question is absolutely that it, it will pass. I've talked to four since yesterday's vote, all of them feeling strongly toward the resolution that was supported in a 6-3 vote uh, at planning committee yesterday. And of course... With 16 members of council, we, we, we only need those four, not even. And if that happens then, if it does get ratified next week at council, how soon does work begin on this project? Like I say, we, we asked for, in April of 2016, staff to come back to us, we asked unanimously, for a process and a, and a path to make this all uh, work uh, simultaneously. So... Uh, uh, the developers would need to sign off on 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 making sure that there was no uh, year, two, three year period where you had a demolition, but nothing was being built. All of this has to follow a process where uh, you have to designate before you demolish. You have to make sure your site plans are in order. So I think we went over that a few months ago when we last talked about it. There's definitely stages that have been signed off on on both sides. Uh, that make this happen uh, uh, and make it more of a reality, uh, almost a binding uh, uh, reality than, than, than what traditionally may happen, right? You get your demo permit, you, you demolish a, a building or two, and you wait until the market's right or you're sitting on it or you want to speculate or flip it down the road. This isn't happening here. This is a binding process. Both sides are on board. Which is exactly, I mean, you mentioned uh, Core Urban and the work that they're doing, and, and, and it's, it's interesting uh, just by comparison to, to, to listen when I was talking to, to Dave Sauvé and Steve Kulikowski about some of the projects, and I said, whatever happens with these things, we were going through their, their, their portfolio of some of the projects they've done here, I said, you, you guys never seem to come up, oh, gee, we didn't see that coming when they tear a wall down, you know, and, and they said, because we plan for all of that stuff. So if, it, if there is nothing there, then fine, we save money. But they always plan for this. Uh, we just want to see this thing moving right now. And I know that there are, there are some concerns about the structures, et cetera, like that. But the sooner this thing gets done, uh, the better. I mean, it's, it's now become an eyesore at Gore Park. And that's, that's maybe the biggest tragedy here of all. And it looks like there's a light at the end of the tunnel now. Oh, Bill, an eyesore during the Junos, an eyesore during the Pan Am Games. You know, you look at the multi-million dollar project that is the Gore Master Plan that has essentially come to reality. The smallest piece will get done, hopefully get started in the spring in front of the beautifully restored Royal Connaught Hotel where Spalacci and Valerie are doing a tremendous job. We don't talk about that enough, but you're talking about a pedestrianized piece of property. Your front property is essentially uh, patios that we're going to allow to expand right into flow right into the park. Uh, where uh, programming is already uh, brilliantly put together Wednesday through Fridays with the downtown promenade and the downtown BIA. There's already so much significant uh, investment that has been done and programming that continues in that area that this is undoubtedly, Bill, and I know you agree, going to be prime real estate. This is going to be a uh, uh, sought-after commercial and residential development once complete, and I know the consortium behind this project feels the same way. Is this going to act as a catalyst for some of the stuff that may is being talked about for the north side of Gore now? 
Well, uh, like I told you last time, the uh, word on the street is Aragon Properties from Vancouver have uh, uh, made a significant um, uh, investments in purchasing uh, almost all of the buildings on that north side of King. Uh, they uh, want to uh, create something that uh, is uh, is actually yes, very much going to uh, work as um, as as a driver. Uh, uh, it's obviously LRT related as well. They know the stop is right there, just as uh, the consortium on the south side knows, just as Leuna knows with their interest at the the Kresge's property and the the great density that they're proposing early albeit, but that they're proposing there. It's a very much uh, a catalyst for development, the uh, the LRT plans. But uh, Aragon and I have uh, yet to sit down, but I, I've already uh, shared through my office. I'm, I, I welcome a visit. I look forward to hearing what uh, some of those future plans for all of the properties that they've recently purchased. So these are the people that already own the Wright House, some mm-hmm. buildings to the uh, east of Wright House, but they've taken it right up to Jane Street. Minus, from what I hear, uh, through our urban renewal department, minus one one building. So they very much want to uh, create something very special there, too. And the more the merrier, Bill. I mean, it's just continuing as far as the momentum and the vitality in downtown Hamilton, the rejuvenation. we got a report today, Bill, that shows that uh, over 1,100 jobs in the last year have uh, have uh, 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 become a reality in downtown Hamilton, which is well above the five-year average. And so that that just tells you people want to be part of what's happening in Ward 2, for sure. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, What's this idea of music on the patios, uh, which was uh, being proposed for a couple of different areas? Uh, They decided to table it, um, and and it was interesting. I just... I'm trying to piece together exactly what the rationale might be for this. Uh, they, they obviously are concerned about the impact this might have on neighborhoods, but I mean these are these are you know talking about licensed establishments, right? And uh, they put this off, so the, you're not going to be able to do this. Now this is going on in other cities. Uh, you know the idea of pop-up patios is happening, but and I go back to my commentary from eight ten this morning when I. It just seems that every time there's an opportunity to to be innovative like this. The city always just seems to go in half measures. Well, I'm not so sure if we wanted to. They just want to dip a toe in the water. They're afraid to jump in and do stuff. Uh, and the things that have happened in this city, and there's some wonderful things that have happened, from art crawls to, to super crawl even, but even the art crawls that, that are held down on James Street, that, that, those were organic. I mean, the, the city kind of jumped on board after somebody else really did all the heavy lifting to make these things work. Well, the same thing's going on here. You've got a bunch of people that are, are being very innovative now. Uh, great restaurants are opening up and establishments are opening up around here. And uh, part of the ambiance of those things can be music. And, and of course, there's a debate that's been going on in this city for some time, for instance, about Sarkoa down on the waterfront uh, because of the concern about the volume of the music, etc., and that filled it all the way across the bay to, to Aldershot, to Burlington, because some of the residents over there said, well, you know, the music's too loud and it bothers us, etc." And that's, that's a discussion that's ongoing. But what about other areas of town? What about the idea of music on the patio? There was a, a, an idea to do this, and city staff came up with a report that would talk about the parameters that they could use to do this. You know, how many decibels, what was the music level going to be, what nights would they allow to do this, and... and I thought it sounded pretty decent. I mean, it was Thursday to Saturday, I guess, we're, we're going to be the nights. It's not as if it's going to happen every night. And it had to shut off by 11 o'clock. And just picture in your mind right now, I know it's kind of a dreary day today, but picture in your mind a nice summer evening. And you want to go to a, an establishment, and you want to sit on the outdoor patio, if in fact they have one. And you might want to actually hear some music, right? <laughs> it, it happens, guys. Uh, well, you can't do that in Hamilton. First of all, because they, they've tabled this thing right now, which means this pilot project is not going to be happening. And I, I just I just think it's short-sighted. I mean, you know, they, they want to call themselves and dub themselves as Music City. You know, there have been attempts here to get the, the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame here. None of that stuff worked out. But maybe maybe the time has come for this sort of thing. But... It's only going to happen if city council gets smart about this and, and starts working with the people that own these establishments to give them a break and let them do the sorts of things to help their businesses thrive. And I think music on the patios on a trial basis in some locations is not a bad idea. 
But the council, as per usual, is usually afraid that, you know what, I might get three or four phone calls from somebody who's dead set against this, so let's not do it. And that's, that's 19th century thinking in a 21st century atmosphere. It's just not going to work. Let me bring Dean Collette into the conversation. Dean, of course, is the owner of Sizzle and Coy in Hess Village uh, and knows what of he speaks when he's talking about working with city council to try to, to make the businesses uh, succeed and to thrive. Dean, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, thanks. It's always fun to come on your show, Bill. Thanks for calling. Well, this is this is kind of timely because of the, the, the matter that council was dealing with, the planning committee was dealing with yesterday, uh, and, and this idea about having music on patios uh, and, and, and entertainment districts. And you're right smack dab in, in you know one of the most famous ones here in Hamilton, of course, with Hess Village. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of what they should have done yesterday, what's what's your thought, Dean, about the, this whole concept about allowing music on patios? Well, I was, I, was, I was listening to what you were saying just now, and you kind of hit the nail on the head. What, when you talked about fear, and, you know, it, it, sometimes fear can paralyze uh, things from, from getting done properly. And, you know, the fear is that, oh, well, if we allow music on patios, it's going to turn into this crazy outdoor wild free-for-all. And that's not what's being proposed here. What's being proposed is a very sensible uh, uh you know, accommodation of music, and, and frankly, it's not just music, Bill, it's any form of, of, uh, of entertainment. Like, we, we, had, we used to have a TV in our patio, which was, which was really good for things like World Cup, European Cup, yeah. when they're in the playoffs, and we, they made us take our TV out. And, you know, if you go anywhere else in the province, if you want to sit in a patio and enjoy a nice lunch or a nice dinner, and there's ambient music playing, that's, that's normal. But in Hamilton, for some reason, we don't have anything. Like it's sort of like you're 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 throwing out the baby instead of the bathwater. You know, like you're 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 you've gone overboard because of the fear factor. And what people need to realize is that this this proposal doesn't circumvent noise bylaws. What it does is it it's, this is a sort of a special, weird to Hamilton only, absolutely no music on patios, no entertainment on patios. We're not asking for the noise bylaws to be circumvented. If someone's playing their music too loud, then bylaws should come and either ask them to turn it down and they comply. If they don't comply, then write them the appropriate ticket. We're also not asking for anything to happen past 11 p.m. I understand people's right to quiet enjoyment. And, you know, this is all about coming up with a common sense solution. It doesn't make sense that because people are worried that they're going to be kept up at 2 in the morning, that, that, you know, we have to ban all music or that people are worried that some people are going to play their music too loud. If they play it too loud, bylaws should show up and enforce the noise bylaw. And, and as for the 2 a.m. aspect of this, obviously the proposal here was that the music had to be shut off by 11 o'clock. So, I mean, you know, which is really in compliance with the bylaw, with noise bylaws around the city anyway. Exactly. And, and you know, again, it, it comes down to, I believe, the fear factor is, you know, some people that, that over the years have, have dealt with, uh, you know, certain operators that are not very considerate have had their quiet enjoyment disturbed. So it's like now we just want to paint the entire uh, 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 entertainment industry with the same brush saying, well, because of one or two bad apples, we're not allowing anybody to do anything at any time. And it just, it's, 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 it's too, uh, too onerous. It's not, it's not a proper sensible solution. And I firmly believe, after spending the last couple of years with certain counselors, predominantly uh, Councillor Farr, but a couple other counselors I've had discussions with, what they're proposing yesterday was a very was a very simple and effective solution that really shouldn't bother anybody. And, and you know, the fact is, to assuage the, the fear factor, they they even put it a two-year sort of test trial uh, part to it which, you know, allows people to sort of take a look at what worked, what didn't. And frankly, I don't see how anything isn't going to work, because if somebody at 8 p.m. decides that they want to crank some music to a level that is disturbing neighbors, that's what noise bylaw is for. You call the noise bylaw, they show up, they deal with it. Dean, this is another example, as I mentioned in my commentary this morning, of, of council doing things in half measure. And, and, and the, 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 the example I used was last year with the pop-up patio idea. Uh, which is fabulous. I mean, this has happened in many other communities. You know, these patios are right on the sidewalk, and it, oftentimes they block a lane of traffic, but it, it, so what? It, 
So they finally said, okay, we'll allow a few of them, and it'll be a trial project, but you're not allowed to serve alcohol. And I figured, what the heck is going on with you people? You know, it, it, on, a, on a beautiful Sunday afternoon or Saturday afternoon or whatever, you want to sit outside because it's it's a beautiful day, and but you can't have beer or wine there. You can't have alcohol. Are they afraid that, that, that we're all going to run amok here? I mean, you know, this is this is Victorian, 19th century Victorian thinking that they're applying here. Well, the unfortunate part is, you know, as somebody who likes to travel, and I do, and I know you do too, it's, you know, when you go to other cities and you go to other places, whether it's for a convention or to visit family or just because you want to experience the city, one of the best things to do is to sit on a patio when the weather's nice, enjoy a glass of wine, and listen to some music. And, you know, these are things that you get to do in almost every city I've ever been to. Now, if there's a patio that's playing really raucous, loud music, you know what? For me, that's not really what I want, so I wouldn't go to a place like that. But I don't think that's what's being proposed here. What's being proposed here is... You know, uh, maybe getting an opportunity to go listen to somebody like Tommy Swick, who's who's a, a great local artist of ours, who does from time to time take his acoustic guitar and go play in a patio, or or listen to uh, you know two guys uh, playing two different instruments, whether it's an instrumental set or a vocal set. Right now, we're actually technically not allowed to do that. Yeah, I know. There's an establishment we go to in Ancaster, right on Wilson Street, and, and Tommy will play there from time to time, which is apparently fine, but you can't step outside and play. It's okay inside, but apparently outside it's verboten. You're just not supposed to do that. I, I just can't understand the rationale for this sort of thing, Dean. And, and, and you wonder about stuff like this. Let me quick email here uh, from Alexis, who's listening to our conversation. Uh, she says, I'm a middle-aged business person who works in the core and lives in the suburbs. Occasionally... I stick around to the city and go to dinner or out for a drink with my staff or colleagues or some clients. I'm tired of apologizing for the boring ambiance on the patios around town because that's not the case in other cities. Many of our patios are still used as smoking areas despite the bylaws. Add some reasonable music, kick out the smokers, and please join the 21st century. That's an email from Alexis who's listening to it. And I think there's a lot of people who think just like she does. Well, and I, I think you're right about that. I mean, the unfortunate thing is it's not always it's not always the, the silent majority that gets heard, right? I mean, you know, there are a few people, and, and, you know, maybe they have legitimate concerns because certain things have happened. But again, this, this proposal is not going to in any way, shape, or form open the floodgates for anarchy on patios. It, it's very uh, restrictive. It's, it's got time restrictions. It doesn't in any way circumvent the existing noise bylaws. It's, it's not allowing for people to play music at a level that is too loud. It is. It is asking for just reasonableness, sensibleness, and and I like the email that the that the listener just sent you because that is exactly you know what what we're trying to battle in our industry right now is to create a patio envir- environment that is lively but not unruly. And it, right now, it's impossible to create uh, a really sort of uh, energetic or lively atmosphere in a patio when you have no music. If you, you know, if you think about it, I can't think of any other city that, that has a bylaw. No, and we've traveled. I mean, I, I told the story last year. Uh, we went and visited our daughter up in Barrie. And and they've got some of those pop up patios there, and it was the summertime, and you know we went and I, we had a beer and something to eat, and sat outside. It was a lovely experience, and yeah, there was music. My God, and you know what, you know, it people weren't screaming in the streets. I mean, everybody seemed to be enjoying themselves, and isn't that really the goal? Well, you know, we just you saw our city just spent a, a whole whack of money on Gore Park, and it looks beautiful. But if you think about the last few summers, city initiatives they've done live music in Gore. Yeah, and it's been really. Kind of nice, you know. Like I work downtown now, as I told you before. I I went to law school, so I work in an office right beside uh, the courthouse. And so in the summertime, when I go for lunch, sometimes I have a half an hour where I can sit outside and listen to music. Well, that's what we want to have happen all over the city, and we want to have it happen on patio. And you know, like I don't think anybody's complaining about. Anarchy in Gore Park when we're having live music in Gore Park, are they? No, and it's, there's other examples. I mean, that's the, the you, you ever go to Williams Coffee Pub down on the waterfront there, down by Pier Eight? Uh, guess what? Dean? The city puts music on there in the evening in the summertime. So, so there's a, there's a double standard here. In other words, it's okay if they do it, but they don't want private bar owners to do that. It just doesn't make sense. 
Well, yeah, and, and it, it's almost as if they're, you know, they have this paternalistic view that we're, you know, you can't be trusted. It's like, well, no, we, you have all the different inspection facilities at your disposal to use if there is an unruly bar owner. If there's a restaurant or bar owner that is doing something that is continuously showing disrespect to his neighbors, use the existing tools that you have instead of just sort of saying, you know what? Because of these two or three people that have caused a little bit of issue across the city, none of you can be trusted, and that's what's frustrating. There's there's another element too, uh, uh, and it's it's there's always going to be people that disagree, and we've talked about some of the other cities where this goes on. Uh, boy, I mean, you know, the, the, the penultimate example of this is you go downtown Montreal, of course, in the summertime, where they open the doors to those restaurants and, and you know, people spill out onto the streets. And it's it's fabulous. It's a fun place to be. And that's what we're trying to create here. But it's never going to be unanimous. There's always going to be people that, that are going to disagree and say, we just don't want this here. But that shouldn't really be the reason for for not doing anything. You're, you're absolutely right, Dean. It's almost as if they say, I might get four or five people complaining about this, so let's not even go there. Well, that's that's not leadership. And the other thing that you'll notice is, like, one of the exciting things that's happening in Hamilton right now is the density is starting to happen. If you look at a lot of the proposed, well, current, you know, you see what's happening at the Canaan, but if you look at a lot of the proposed new developments, they're, they're building up now which means we're creating density. And who are they building those condominiums for? They're building them for people that want to have an urban living. And so, you know, part of urban living is being able to walk out your front door and having choices for entertainment, for dining, for shopping, for all of these things. So as a city, we're now beginning to mature. And, you know, I've been, I've been, I've been an operator in Hamilton for 20 years. And they, they keep saying, oh, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Well, you know what? Guess what? It's finally happening. And if it's going to happen, we have to have grown-up laws, too. We have to be able to facilitate a new city. And that new city is a dynamic one. It's one that, that people are looking for entertainment. They're looking for uh, 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 an adult scene at, in the evening and even at lunch that caters to something where you don't have to leave the city to go enjoy yourself. You're actually going to now go into the city to enjoy yourself. <laughs> I listen to music, and when it, you know, in the summertime, I, I, when I sit in the backyard, I want to listen to music. I, I mean, how far are they going to go with this? Are they going to ban music? Am I allowed to play my 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 music in the in the backyard now because I might offend somebody in the neighborhood? I mean, th- it happens, right? And it's summertime, and, it, and as you mentioned, there are restrictions that are already in place here in this proposal about eleven o'clock shutoffs and and the decibel level, etc., like this. It's all covered. I I, I can't understand. I know one of the counselors said she's concerned about the rural areas. I don't know how many bars there are in some of the rural areas anyway that would do this sort of thing. So I'm wondering if they're making up reasons, really, to try to justify this. Well, and the other thing that I don't understand is that, you know, one of the things that that was put into the proposal was that it's a a two-year test pilot. You know, like, how about we just try it for two years? And and if, you know, if there's going to, if you're going to all of a sudden, like, look, I live in Flamborough. I live in Millgrove. If, if all of a sudden 200 Millgrove residents show up at, at city council in two years because, oh, my gosh, this, this two-year pilot has just made our life from tranquil to just turned it upside down, then, yeah, we'll talk. But that's not going to happen. And, and I just I don't understand. You know, like, like I, I, I wasn't there at council last night, so I don't know what some of the specific arguments against were. But when I sit in a... In a you know, in a quiet moment, to try to run things through my head about what are people afraid of, I can't. I can't think of it. Well, they say it would be unfair to uh, bar and patio owners who uh, are operating businesses outside designated districts, like uh, like yours at Hess or James North or the Bayfront or Augusta, which is another great entertainment area uh, that's happening, or Upper James. Uh, but which begs the question: Then, uh, first of all, how many of these people that outside those areas would actually want to do this? And, and secondly, there's no suggestion that everybody is going to do this anyway. In, in, in other words, they're looking for problems here, and, and where problems probably don't even exist. Well, and, okay, and so they counter the, the, the flip the argument for a minute. So then say, how is it fair for everybody that operates within Hamilton to compete with Burlington, right? Because they don't have those bylaws. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a weird argument. And at the end of the day, like, pick, pick your argument. Like, it's... it's uh, you know, are, are you are you worried because it's 
the argument you're worried because it's going to make people not be able to enjoy their their right to quiet enjoyment in their home, or is it because you're worried about some some other weird kind of uh, business competition? Uh, you know, I don't understand it. At the end of the day, it, we we've been doing everything right over the last little while to get our downtown finally moving, and it's moving. New restaurants opening. There's new condominiums and housing being built. There's there's property development. There's exciting things happening in Hamilton. We need to keep up with that. One of the things is when the Toronto Blue Jays are in the semifinals or, or getting ready to play for the World Series and people want to sit on the patio and watch that, it should be allowed. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk Kevin O'Leary. Uh, he made it official just a, a little while ago, just a couple of hours ago. Uh, after uh, apparently listening to the Canadians, that's what he said. You know, he put a website up and said, you know, do you think I should run for the leadership of the Conservative Party? And apparently a lot of people responded on his website. So he uh, made it official this morning and said he's uh, throwing his hat into the ring. Uh, <laughs> coincidentally, it was the night after the French language debate because he doesn't speak French. But uh, a lot of things about Kevin O'Leary as, as a candidate now for the leadership of the Conservative Party. Uh, to join, to uh, talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Christo Avelos, a Queen's University labor and political history professor, uh, to give us some take on this. Uh, Christo, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, not surprised by Kevin O'Leary's announcement. I guess nobody's surprised by this, are they? No, I don't think so. I think this was coming, you know, for, for weeks and weeks and weeks now that, you know, it was clear he was going to, to make a run. You know, he said it was kind of... You know, I, I put up this website, and I was, you know, astonished by the outpouring of support from Canadians. But in reality, he's had a, you know, exploratory committee for a while now, and I think he sees a kind of opening for himself in the race. And I think he's confident about his chances. And I think you're right. There's, it's, it's probably more than a coincidence that he's joining up right after the French language. <laughs> but he says he's going to learn the language. So He did. There... I think he promised to, to learn it by 2019, which I guess from a campaigning perspective is, is the bare minimum, of course, and you know that would hopefully allow him in 2019 to, to campaign in Quebec. Christo, obviously there are parallels being drawn between O'Leary and, and Trump. Are, are, are they fair? In some senses, they are. Um, you know, they're both rich. They're both known uh, in the public media, you know, as, as anything but politicians. Um, they both are kind of known as savvy businessmen, and they both have a kind of reality TV, TV profile. Of course, Trump with, you know, the Celebrity Apprentice, mm -hmm. and, then, and then Kevin O'Leary on Shark Tank and Dragon's Den. So he's known really across both borders. So I think in that sense, it's quite fair. They're both bombastic and whatnot. They're both attacks on the establishment but I think they're different in a lot of ways. I think Trump is more of a kind of law-and-order Republican, whereas, you know, we're talking about protectionism to a certain degree, whereas O'Leary seems to be, at least in a sense, a, a kind of libertarian, although his positions on, you know, jailing trade union members and leaders, uh, it really it, it doesn't give, me, give people much faith, I think, on his support of free association. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that, as, uh, about substance. Uh, uh... And, and, and again, to use that parallel between Trump and, and O'Leary, which uh, a lot of folks are going to draw, uh, you have to ask yourself, well, what's, what substance is there? Because one of the criticisms about Trump during his campaign last year was that there wasn't a whole lot of, of substance to what he was talking about. He seemed, in many people's minds, Christo, to appeal to the lowest common denominator, uh, yet he won as a result of that. Is, is that a strategy that a guy like O'Leary will adopt? I mean, again, I think to some degree, yes. I think O'Leary, uh, I think, thinks of himself as more of an intellectual, and I think he's seen as, uh, you know, maybe more cerebral than, than, than Trump. I think he's less seen as a kind of, you know, machi with the less, less machismo in that sense. So I think in some sense I'll have less ability to rely on that. But I think he will appeal to kind of the Trump strategy which is, you know, the, the key to winning this race, in a sense, is to get media attention. And the way Trump got that early kind of spark was, one, he was already well-known, and two, his wild statements, some of which I think were genuine, but I think some of which were calculatedly made to generate media attention, got his name on the news, and it was free publicity. And I think Kevin O'Leary will do some of the same things. For instance, one of the things I think he has no real... Um, intent on implementing is selling Senate seats. 
You mentioned that a couple days ago, where essentially um, wealthy Canadians would be able to kind of buy Senate seats and, in a sense, buy political and kind of social influence. And that generated a lot of, um, you know, rhetoric and, 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 and backlash on social media, but it got Kevin Leary's name out there. And I think that could be one thing he does to kind of put him on the front pages and whatnot uh, above his competitors. It's because obviously, I mean, you know, he mentioned jobs, which I guess just about everybody, whoever runs for public office at any level says, yeah, I'm going to bring jobs. It, it just seems to be part of the mantra of, of, of political campaigns. And that's essentially what this is right now. But we don't really know a whole lot else about what he would do and, and what, what kind of uh, promotions he would bring and what kind of policy he would bring to the table. I mean, yeah, I think, I think you'll see a, a few, I think in some sense, he'll be, uh, he'll, he'll be talking a lot about I think, more of a market-centered conservative in that sense. So his view is that the reason why Canada is doing poorly right now to a certain degree is there's too much reliance on government and regulation, too many unions, too many workers' rights. The goal is going to be to slash workers' rights, slash unions, slash government intervention, and then, you know, empower the entrepreneurial spirit of the country. And he mentioned uh, today in one of his interviews the kind of natural bounty of Canada to produce, you know, a kind of, uh, new spurt of jobs. But he has some interesting policies as well that I think will make him, again, appeal to to maybe some people across the... Uh, again, uh, in some senses, he's a civil libertarian. Again, not, not with workers' rights, but uh, certainly on, on other issues. I think there's also a reality that, uh, you know, he, he to a certain degree supports a carbon tax, which is, uh, you know, from some perspectives in the Conservative Party, is a job-killing carbon tax, but from others, it's the market solution to how we deal with carbon. Uh, emission costs. So I think there there will be some policy there, uh, but you know that's why I think he lines up in a general sense. Again, we're always going to, I guess, go back and forth between the Trump O'Leary thing. Uh, there are a lot of Republicans that uh, that never really considered Trump to be a Republican. In other words, he selected that party to run in uh, simply because it was probably the most convenient for him. But he, had, of course, Trump had been a registered Democrat for many years down in the states. Uh, O'Leary. Let, let's look at him now, and, and as you mentioned, the, some of the differences in, in his approach to some of these things, Christo, is he a true conservative? I mean, is he going to be embraced by this party, or are they going to look at this guy as, as, a, as a, a fly-by-nighter who's a, an opportunist? You know, I, I think that, that certainly that fly-by-night opportunism will definitely hit him because he really hasn't been a kind of party soldier. Um, but I think ideologically, whereas you know Trump has a kind of historical tie to the Democrats. Trump has at times been pro-choice. Trump has at times supported socialized medicine. You know, Trump is, is ideologically um, inconsistent. Hey, uh, heck, at one time he even liked Meryl Streep. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, for, certainly, certainly. Uh, O'Leary, I think, does fit the general um, conservative party. The thing with the conservative party, and you're seeing this even before O'Leary entered the race, is that you have two you know, camps, and this is not to dichotomize, but to contextualize, you have on the one hand a social conservative, you know, camp that believes that, you know, the government must, you know, protect morality, protect uh, social values, you know, you know, this is where Kelly Leach and Brad Trust come in to a certain degree. On the other hand, you have more of the types who argue that the path for conservatism going forward is in, you know, uh, in fiscal conservatism, but social progressivism, you know. And in that sense, I think O'Leary, um, again, accepting his, his, his views about, about, about making uh, certain organizations illegal and jailing those leaders, is generally part of that kind of social, liberal, uh, economic, conservative part of the party. And I think he will be accepted at least among that segment. I don't think it's implausible kind of to, to shortly say that he's running as a conservative. Will the uh, the language issue be a factor, do you think? I mean, he says he's going to learn this, but I mean, clearly that's... Quebec is only one of, of, of the, the areas that he has to be of concern about here, but it, it can, in, in many instances in past elections we've seen anyway, Christo, it can be a major influence in who gets elected and, and how. Will, will the Quebecois embrace Kevin O'Leary? Well, you know, I think there's a couple factors. I think, one, there's what party strategists will be thinking, and whether or not he needs Quebec to win the leadership, some might feel that the path towards government needs to include at least a decent chunk of Quebec seats. So it might not be, can he win Quebec in the leadership race, it's that, can he win the party more generally. I think another challenge for him is there's already kind of a bombastic kind of, 
you know, fly, like a little bit wild libertarian in Maxime Bernier. And he's a, you know, obviously a native Quebecer, speaks the language fluently. And, and I think that O'Leary will find it difficult in Quebec to kind of win over those kind of people because they're already probably with Bernier. Third, the Conservative Party race is really interesting from a kind of technical perspective because while kind of every Conservative Party member, in a sense, can vote, uh, ridings, ridings are balanced by their weight. So if a riding in Calgary has 5,000 members, it doesn't count for any more than a riding in, say, northern Quebec that might have 100 Conservative Party members. So, you know, there's a lot of small Quebec ridings with not a lot of Conservative members. And if O'Leary can't pick up support in those ridings, he'll find it very difficult. Whereas Bernier, even if he's not popular in Alberta, let's say, he can pick up way more ridings and support in, the, in, in like, you know, smally populated conservative areas. Well, sure. And we that saw, could be a challenge for Leary. We saw that with the NDP uh, surge in, in, in a couple of elections ago, of course, where uh, the NDP actually became the official opposition in, in Parliament, but they did it based solely, pretty much anyway, on, on what happened in Quebec. So there, there's still an element. Now, O'Leary was born in Montreal, but he spent uh, a good deal of his time and still does spend a good deal of his time south of the border. He's got a home in Boston. I mean, a lot of his business interests are down in the States right now, too. Uh, does that get a, become a factor? I mean, I, 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 I'll, I'll go back to the Michael Ignatieff situation, I guess, from a few years ago, Christo, where the opposition parties lambasted him as, uh, what was it, just visiting, right? He wasn't here for the long haul. Uh, does, Larry, does Larry earn that tag? You know, I was, I was when you were mentioning that, I was thinking of Ignatius. That's where I first went. Yeah. I mean, that could happen. Part of me thinks, though, however, and whether this is fair or not, I don't think it'll hurt O'Leary as much. I think whether it's fair or not, because he's a businessman, it's going to be seen as different than Ignatius as an academic. And I don't know if that's fair or not, but I, I don't see that being quite the issue. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's attempted to be used you know, in both in the leadership race and in uh, if if he if he's successful at becoming the the leader in a kind of broader campaign. What's this going to do to this race? This is going to be fascinating, and you've touched on that a couple of times. The dynamic here about the the leadership race. I mean, it's one thing for Kevin O'Leary to say what he's going to do as prime minister. He's got to get the leadership of the party first. Uh, is is this going to get ugly right now? Because I mean, those that are already in the race have tried to, to pretty much, you know, place themselves in, uh, Kelly Leach comes to mind, uh, she's the extreme right candidate. She's the one that uh, a lot of folks have drawn the parallel between some of her policy suggestions and what Trump and, and others are talking about south of the border right now. Uh, I, and now all of a sudden O'Leary's going to try to nudge in there. Where does he fit on that spectrum, and what's he going to do to the to the chances of the other candidates? You know, I think on the one, I, I think he's definitely, uh, you know, because uh, as we talked about earlier, I think he's going to definitely find himself kind of on the, again, the in general, a kind of social, uh, progressive, kind of more of a libertarian wing. He'll find himself closer to Bernier in that instance than uh, than Leach. Um, I think he he will bring a certain kind of, um, you know, uh, bravado to the race. I think he's a very candid person. He speaks in very sharp terms. In that sense, the race could become more combative. Um, I think that a lot of the existing candidates don't like him very much, both, I think, because of his image, both because he's jumping into the race a good chunk of the way through. People were not happy that he skipped the French debate, for instance. Um, and he's faced specific criticisms on some of his policies. And now, the Conservative Party is generally not the party of organized labor, but uh, Lisa Waite, who was one of Stephen Harper's labor ministers, essentially told Kevin O'Leary it's, it's absurd and it's obscene that you want to jail um, you know, Canadian workers for their right of association. And it's like, so I think from a certain perspective, much like how Leach has generated some backlash for her views from some people like Michael Chong and Lisa Ray, uh, O'Leary will do the same. So I think it could kind of heighten some of the ideological and policy divisions in the party. And I think, again, um, name recognition is important. I think a lot of people, just for the entertainment of it all, will be watching more closely now, just because they know who Kevin O'Leary is. 
What about the middle-of-the-road candidates? Uh, we've talked about Lisa Raitt, who uh, some people looked at as, as a, a strong contender for the leadership. Uh, Andrew Shear's name has been mentioned, of course, the former uh, Speaker of the House under the Harper governments, uh, as, as a safe choice. Uh, I, I think that was the way it was characterized by one individual right now. Uh, do those that are trying to sit in the middle there and, and just tr- maybe try to come out of the pack at some point, uh, are they harmed by O'Leary entering this right now? I'm not sure. I mean, I think, again, some of the big ones, like, like Lisa Raitt, who, you know, is a kind of long-running Harper, uh, you know, minister, brings a large profile. I think it would be helpful in the sense for the conservatives to pass some of their ideas uh, through the lens of a woman. Uh, I think that would be really important in a lot of ways. I think a conservative voice coming from a woman will be less apt for criticism in some ways. I think Andrew Scheer, as you mentioned, is, I think, probably maybe the institutional favorite. If you look at who has gotten the most endorsements from conservative party you know, politicians. It's him so far. I think he's young. I think a lot of people like that. It's something that he can grow into. Maybe there's a perception that being so young, he could even lose in 2019 and run again in in a subsequent year. Um, but I think that I, I don't know if O'Leary really harms them. It's so hard to say right now. On the one hand, you might think that, again, it takes away media attention from the moderate voices, and the moderate voices you know, don't get as much. I mean, uh, Leach is the one going on Fox News talking about uh, tearing down Canadian health care and, and banning certain religions from the country to a certain degree. And you have, on the other perspective, Maxime Bernier and Kevin O'Leary, you know, building a strong profile amongst libertarians. But in the center, I think you do have credible people like Scheer uh, and Rate and people like Michael Chong. Uh, Michael Chong was um, the minister in the last parliament who spoke about, uh, you know, reforming uh, parliament to make uh, to give more power to the MPs as opposed to the parties, and he has kind of a wide support. Um, and he went uh, to challenge Leach and said to her, "You know, healthcare is a Canadian value." So I think those moderate candidates might find a way through on subsequent ballots. You know, who's second and third choice on people's ballots? It could be the case that the Leach supporters don't like the O'Leary supporters, and vice versa. But they can all tolerate Lisa Raid or Michael Chong or Andrew Scheer. And, you know, that's where the difference could be made on ballots three, four, five, and so on. We've got about a minute left here, Krista. Let me ask you, when they get down to the, the brass tacks here with O'Leary now in the race, the speculation here is that, well, now a, a, a lot of those folks are going to just drop off, figuring, well, I, I don't have a shot at this right now. Do, do you foresee that happening, that, that some of the, the ones that may be lower, you know, further down on the, on the ballot uh, may just decide off to act with it, this is over now? I mean, I think to a certain degree you'll see a couple people drop. 13 or 14 now is awful. It's, it's an awful lot of people. I mean, the NDP race in 2012, I think it was, 2012, yes, um, had, I think, finished with eight people at the convention. So I think it wouldn't be unreasonable to see the numbers drop by, you know, maybe a half dozen. I don't think as many people will drop um, early because it's, not, it's different than, say, a Republican-style or Democratic-style primary which costs a lot of money to run nationally. I think the initial investment is kind of already made by many of these candidates, and staying on the ballot and being at the convention and, 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 and being able to kind of redirect one's delegates gives one potential power in negotiating with the next leader. So demonstrating your appeal, even if it's a fifth-place finish, and maybe that's the best you can do, might convince the, you know, the future leader, who will be also the uh, you know, official uh, opposition leader, uh, that maybe you're meriting a uh, cabinet role in the future or a critic role right now. And I think in that sense, some people are running not to be leader, but to be in the next conservative cabinet. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.